everybody. It's so nice to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. My name is Matt Hall. I'm the Outreach Ministry Coordinator, and it's my pleasure to be here with you today. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about calling. Uh, that's what I want to talk about today. So how do you know what God's calling you to do, and how do you understand where God might be pushing you or guiding you to go next? Um, so I, I'd be curious to hear if there are things that folks have felt like they've been called to do. So when I think about it, I mean, there's lots of ones that probably might jump to mind. Uh, so maybe you've always known that you wanted to be a parent. There are folks who, from the time they were a child, they knew that's what they wanted to do. Um, or maybe there was that perfect job opportunity that just fell right out of the sky and it matched your skills exactly and you were just the exact right person in the right place at the right time. Um, maybe there's a ministry or a mission partner like the many that we have here that we work with at RUMC, and you just felt God pulling at your heart to get connected to this kind of ministry or this kind of service. These are all ways that maybe you felt called, but sometimes it can be harder to tell about where you're being called. Now, sometimes when we think about the famous Bible stories from Sunday school, it seems a lot easier to tell where somebody's being called. Think about Moses, right? Moses had a burning bush that's on fire, but it's not being burned up, and somebody's speaking to him out of this weird non-burning burning bush, and it's pretty easy to tell that something weird's going on here, so you might want to listen to what the bush says. Um, Paul, right, who wrote much of the New Testament, is walking along the road and suddenly struck blind, and here's God calling him to change his ways and do the opposite of what he's been doing. Um, that's, again, pretty dramatic. Uh, Mary, right, Jesus' mother, has an angel appear to hear her to say, oh, hey, by the way, you're going to become pregnant now. Um, or we can think about Jonah. Jonah is another one right out of Sunday school. Jonah actually tried to resist his call, and then for his trouble, he had to get swallowed and then vomited up by the whale in order to try to do his call better the second time around, to actually go where he was supposed to go the first time. Um, so in all of these cases, right, the burning bush, the angel, the being struck blind, the swallowing by a whale— there's a very big, ostentatious, dramatic indication that this is what God wants you to do. There's really no ifs, ands, or buts about it because it's very clear. But even in those cases where it might be clear, it's, that doesn't mean that it's easy, right? Moses was being called to take a whole group of people who were enslaved and actually just walk away from the people who were enslaving them against the ruler's wishes. That's not a very easy thing to do, um, Paul, had, he says that he was the one who was the foremost persecutor of Christians. He was the most zealous anti-Christian persecutor. And now he's supposed to suddenly say, oh, I guess I was wrong and they were right. That's not easy to do. Um, Jonah, right, was his call, what his call was that got him swallowed by that whale was he was supposed to go to Nineveh, which was a wicked city. That's what it was known for, was being especially wicked and terrible and tell them to change their ways and get right with God. That's not an easy thing to do. That's why he actually ran away and resisted his call was because he was afraid to go. Um, or Mary, right? Mary was being told that she was going to become pregnant at a time where that could potentially lead to you being stoned under Jewish law. So that's not very easy to think that if I announce this and people don't believe me with my unbelievable story, 
then I could face death for this. And that's not easy either. So even when God calls you somewhere, um, it might be obvious, but that doesn't always mean that it's easy. Um, We can even think about Jesus in the garden, right? Jesus, when he's in the garden, right before he's about to be crucified, his prayer is, if it be possible, let this cup be taken from me. Jesus actually prays that if there's another way and I don't have to do this thing that I'm being called to do, then let's do the other thing instead, because that'll be easier. So he knows he has a call and he knows it's going to be difficult. Um, But so there are these good examples of folks in the Bible who we learned about in Sunday school class, maybe, and they accept their call, they listen, they do what they're asked to do. But not everybody does this. Um, so today in the reading from Luke, we see a couple of folks who thought they maybe were ready to do it, but once they actually got called, suddenly they thought things might not be as easy or they might not quite be as ready as they first had thought. So let's read from Luke. Um, so as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you will go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So this is kind of a weird reading. Jesus is trying to call these people, and they sort of think they're ready, but actually they're not. And actually right after this passage, the very next thing that happens is Jesus commissions people and tells them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And so it's, which is sort of funny because Jesus is just out here sort of turning down people who are trying to follow him, and then he's turning around and criticizing that there's not enough people ready to follow. So uh, that's kind of a funny one to me. Um, So what stands out to me in all of these cases is that people think that they're ready to follow, or Jesus calls them when they're right there, they're listening to Jesus, or they even come and say, I am ready. And then as soon as the cost of followership is put upon them, that maybe it'll be uncomfortable, maybe they won't be able to go to the funeral that they wanted to go to, maybe they won't say goodbye like they thought they were going to, then once the cost becomes sort of prohibitively high, they're not ready to make the trade-off. And so then they might start asking themselves, did I actually discern this properly? Did I understand what God was calling me to do? Because if God was calling me to do this, why is it so hard? And that is a very real and very valid question for them to have asked. Um, For those of us who haven't been greeted by a burning bush or visited by an angel or stricken blind or whatever else, it can be hard. Many of us, like those disciples, we don't have the luxury that they did where Jesus actually said to them, hello, follow me, please, right now. That's not something that many of us have experienced. Um, And so it can be hard for us to figure out what we're being called to do. Um, This was a question that I used to get asked a lot, actually, because before I worked here at RUMC, I used to work at Georgetown University in D.C., um, and I was working in a role where I was living in the dorms, I was living with the students. Actually, my fun trivia fact about myself is that I spent 15 years living in college dorms. Between being in college and then working in college, I lived in the dorms for many, many years. Um, But most recently at Georgetown, 
And in that role, I was working in the office of campus ministry, uh, but living in the dorms with students, mostly juniors and seniors. So these are folks who, high-achieving students at an elite school, getting ready to graduate and go out into lots of high-powered things in the world. But one thing that they consistently would come find me to talk about is, Matt, how am I supposed to figure out what am I supposed to do? Like, how do I know what I'm supposed to do out in the real world once I graduate? This was a question that I got asked 10 times a semester if I got asked once by different students who all thought that they were the only ones who had this kind of question and everyone else had it figured out. Um, so I'll give you a couple examples. I had a student named Timmy um, who was working for a government agency in a nonpartisan, nonpolitical role. And he was about to graduate, and he knew he was going to get offered a full-time like, job in the agency, but in a political capacity. And he had a lot of trepidation to say, I don't know if I'm comfortable being a basically political appointee for the Trump administration. And so even though this is kind of the career path that I've chosen, now that I'm graduating, I don't feel good about it. And so how do I discern if this is the right thing or not? I had another student who was the president of GU Right to Life, the group that had been pushing against abortion and working for pro-life causes. She was the president of this at this Catholic university. So again, a pretty high-powered club on campus, high-powered position, getting ready to go to law school and trying to think about how do I take what matters to me personally in this advocacy work and how do I translate that into a workforce that maybe doesn't feel the same passion about this that I feel? Um, so trying to think about where am I being called? Both of those folks felt called to the work that they were doing with um, the arts, in Timmy's case, and with pro-life advocacy, in Carrie's case. Um, but they didn't understand how do I take where I am and where am I being called to go next? Um, for me, when I think about this, I like to think about detective stories, <laughs> which is why I have my handy magnifying glass here. Um, so when I was a kid, I was a voracious reader. So I would read anything I could get my hands on, but my all-time favorite stuff to read was always mystery stories. It didn't matter from the time I was a kid and I was reading The Boxcar Children or Nancy Drew or Encyclopedia Brown to when I was older and I would read Sherlock Holmes and Ellery Queen and Hercule Poirot and um, everything I could get my hands on. So my library system had 77 of Agatha Christie's 80 books and I read every single one that was in the whole library system because I just loved mysteries. And what I especially loved about them was how in mystery stories, right, there could be that one tiny thing, that little clue, that one misstatement that somebody made, that slip, and that whole thing that seemed insignificant at the time ends up being the thing that reveals the whole truth, that cracks the case wide open. And so even though everybody else missed it, somebody who was really paying attention, who was really watching and listening and observing what was going on and what people were saying and really paying the, the full attention, those were the people who could uncover the mystery of what was going on. Um, so when I think about how I determine God's will or when I would talk with the students at Georgetown about how to think about where they're being called next, a lot of the times I would think about this in terms of clues. Um, now, this is something definitely that is not a new question. Theologians have been thinking about this much longer than mystery stories have been around uh, or than I've been giving advice to college students. Um, you can even see this, actually, again, in today's lectionary, there was a very helpful portion that talked about this exact kind of thing. So Paul, 
the same Paul who was stricken blind on the road, um, he went through, when he was writing to the church in Galatia, he wrote about all of these terrible things that you shouldn't do. You shouldn't lie. You shouldn't murder people. You shouldn't do all of these things. You shouldn't get drunk. All of these long list of vices. And then he turns around to say what you should do and how do you know when the Spirit is actually at work in your life? And so he identified some clues that can be used to try to help the Galatians think about where God is calling them and how they know when they are in fact doing God's will. So let's read from Paul's letter to the Galatians. By contrast, Paul writes, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, I think they actually wrote gender, generosity is in this translation, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh and with it its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Um, so for Paul, what he encourages folks to do is to look for the clues, those virtues that provide evidence that God is working in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So when you're thinking about where God is calling you, this is a good test to try to hold up. So maybe you're trying to start that new routine that keeps uh, evading you or that you keep being unsuccessful with. So a good test to maybe see if this is something that you are in fact being called to do or a good spiritual discipline for you is to think about what that is causing in your life? Is your struggle to get into this new routine making you more patient? Is this struggle that as you try to continue to do something day after day that you've been wanting to do, is that building your self-control? Those are kind of some of these fruits of the Spirit that Paul clues as evidence that this is something that God wants. But alternatively, maybe the reason that you're not being successful is because you're actually not being called in that direction. Maybe the new routine is making you very frustrated and that's causing you to be agitated or harsh or lash out. That's not being gentle. That's not having self-control. So these could be evidence that that's not maybe where I'm being called to go. Um, But Paul wasn't the only person who thought about this, certainly throughout church history. When I was at Georgetown, I already mentioned that was a Catholic and Jesuit institution. So St. Ignatius who's the founder of the Jesuits who started Georgetown. St. Ignatius was kind of like their patron saint at Georgetown. And St. Ignatius spent a lot of time thinking about this exact question. Because when he was growing up, he was no saint. He was a knight. That's what St. Ignatius wanted to be. He was somebody who read and loved reading and dreamt about becoming a chivalrous, brave knight defending the realm and earning acclaim and honor and all of these kinds of things. And so actually in 1521, so last year actually was the 500th anniversary of this happening, Ignatius was in battle and his leg got shattered when a cannonball hit it. So suddenly all his grand courtly dreams of being a gallant knight went out the window. Um, His dreams were shattered alongside his leg and he had to go spend time uh, convalescing, basically just lying in bed waiting around for his leg to hopefully heal as much as it was going to before he could get back out there where he wanted to be, getting glory on the battlefield. Um, 
And while he was convalescing, the place where he was, he was a reader, so he wanted to read. And the only books that they had in this place were about the lives of the saints. And so he started reading, just because he was bored in bed, right? Starts reading the books about the lives of the saints of the past. And as he's doing that, he'll read for a little bit, he'll stop reading, he'll sort of imagine his knightly or courtly fantasies of grandeur and glory. Then he'll read some more, and then he'll think about the valiant escapades that he's going to embark on. And what he started to realize was that the more that he read, the more that these other things that had previously been fulfilling for him started to not be as fulfilling. Um, He loved both. It wasn't that he stopped loving the idea of chivalry and valor and knighthood, but it wasn't leaving him joyful. And what Ignatius' experience would be, he recounts in his autobiography, is that the more he started reading about the lives of the saints, he started to be able to imagine himself emulating this path. And as he imagined that path for his own life, that left him feeling joyful, feeling fulfilled, feeling like this is what he was meant to do. So this became an important idea for him, and he starts talking about these ideas of consolation and desolation. So consolation, again, when God, when you're in alignment with God, it's bringing joy, it's making you feel closer to God, as opposed to desolation is the word that he used, when you're feeling empty or like, where is God? God's not here. I'm not feeling God's presence. He called that spiritual desolation. So a lot of what St. Ignatius taught, and now the Jesuits follow, is this idea that you need to seek out spiritual consolation. When you're testing something, you should try lots of different things because you never know where God's going to call you. But the way to sort of, one of the ways to discern a true call is to see, is it building my spiritual consolation? Is this bringing me closer to God? Is this bringing me joy? Am I more emulating what Jesus taught or not? Now, if, any, if anyone here is Catholic or had a Jesuit education, I want to apologize for my sort of very quick, very brief, very Protestant overview of a uh, long, glorious, wonderful tradition. Uh, so I'm not doing it justice, but that at least will get you an idea. Um, so for my own part, when I think about where are the clues that God is at work in my life, some, there's three questions that I like to ask. And this is what I would encourage with my students. And a lot of them found these questions to be helpful to sort of really reflect on. And those questions were, what do I like to do? What am I good at doing? And what does the world need from me? Um, And these all can be good ways to be clued in about where God is calling you to do. Because what am I good at? That's not just something that I happen to be good at, right? We believe that our life and our talents and our skills are God-given. So if God gave me a gift of music or art or whatever or organization, then that's something that God wants me to put to use. So my God-given skill set, what I find, what I'm interested in, these are things that are giving me life, that are making me feel alive and connected to the community, to God, to my neighbor. And then what does the world around me need? You can be having the most fulfilled job. I was just reading this other theologian who I'm not even talking about who was saying, like, you could have the most fulfilled job. You could feel great about what you do and love it. But if what you're doing is making deodorant commercials, that's probably not doing a lot for the world, right? Um, So there are things that the world around us needs from us. There are gaps. There are places where people are hurting, 
right? I just came from talking to a Sunday school class where I was talking about all these mission partners with whom we work. And we have mission partners who work on homelessness, who work on hunger, who work with victims of child sex trafficking, who work with elderly folks, who work with children in foster care, who work overseas with folks who are in very dangerous areas. There's lots of needs that the world has. And so ideally what God is calling us to do is to help repair some of those breaches where the world is not as it should be. So if you can find the intersections of these things, what I like to do, what I'm good at doing, and what the world needs, then that is probably a very strong clue. You should really put your magnifying glass up against that clue to see, is this something that God is calling me toward? So I can give you another example of this from my own experience. When I was at Georgia, before I was at Georgetown, I worked at Georgia Tech, actually, so go Jackets. Um, When I was at Georgia Tech, I worked in student affairs, again, living living in the dorms with the students, talking to students all the time. And everybody in student affairs that I worked with was well-versed in talking about diversity. They could talk about racial diversity and gender and sexual identities. They could talk about abilities and disabilities, everything about diversity, except that when it came to talking about religion, then it was like sort of a dead end. Folks either couldn't talk about it, didn't know enough to talk about it, or didn't have any interest in talking about it. And that was this very weird dichotomy for me, being in student affairs forever. Um, And so for my own part, I had done my Master's of Theological Studies at Emory. Before that, I did an undergrad in Religious Studies in Arizona. So that was something I just talked about all the time. My dad's an Episcopal priest. I've been in church forever. So that's just a normal part of my life. And when students would hear that, suddenly they would come to me and start asking me all these questions that had been pending in their own minds about religion, about identity, about the intersections between them, especially when they heard that I was a facilitator for our LGBT trainings. Because then they would say, I don't know anything about this. I had a student who worked for me whose dad was a pastor and also a Republican mayor of a small town in Georgia. And I had known this student for a long time, and one day he, came, he was really feeling down, came to me and said, Matt, I just got back from church, and I was basically just in the back of the church crying while my dad was preaching because I'm gay and I don't know how to tell my dad. If I do, he's going to think I'm terrible. He's this mayor. It's going to be this big family scandal. It could sink his political career. I just don't know how to talk about this. And I know I'm a Christian. That's very important to me. And he had never really been in a space in a church where somebody could talk about that openly in an affirming way. And so the world needed this, and he sort of found that space by talking to me. So we started talking. I had a different student who was Catholic, who was totally cool with the idea of gay people, but didn't really understand anything about being transgender and wanted to. And so she came and talked to me about this. Then I had a student who was across campus, worked for somebody else, but started to say, oh, my friends are telling me that you know about religion and stuff. And I've never even met a Christian who was like queer affirming. So what, how do you even be that? How could you even be that? And wanted to talk to me about this. So it was this space opened up that had an intersection of what I was good at, right? I had the Master of Theological Studies. I was this trainer about queer identities and stuff. It was something that I liked. One thing that I really value, what's kept me in student affairs, is making space for students. Um, But then also, there were folks who needed it, who didn't have an outlet to talk about that, and so they sought me out. Um, 
there were lots of other students who talked about other stuff too. A Muslim woman deciding, should I wear the hijab or not? A Zoroastrian woman, which I didn't even really know anything about, talking about what does it mean to be a part of this tiny tradition that's shrinking. So students, once they heard I knew about religion, wanted to talk to me about religion all the time. Um, and this kind of became my niche because it had this good intersection of what I knew, what I was good at, and what they needed, what the world around me of the students needed. Um, so what I want to challenge you all to do this week, you could start it now, but I think we're, you'll have time as we're doing our last song. But in your pews, you'll find these little sheets, these pink sheets that have this Venn diagram that I've been describing. And I want you to just take some time on your own to kind of think about these things. Whatever you are good at, whatever you enjoy doing, and whatever the world around you needs. It could be your school, it could be your work, it could be whatever. I want you to think about those things and where there are points of intersection. Because when you have those points of intersection, hold up your magnifying glass very closely to say, what does it mean that I have a skill, I have something that I like, and the world needs it? And how can God be calling me in that direction? So with that, I'll turn it back over to the band. Um, and then as they're playing, I would invite you to sort of grab a pen from the pew in front of you and start to reflect on this. But this should be an encouraging thing to continue as you pray and engage God this week.